This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. Hello, and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and welcome back to the Hegemonicon. Today we have a very interesting panel on social movements, political power, and political instruments with Kamau Shege, the executive director of the Washington Community Alliance, Lizzie O oh of New York DSA, Asha Ransby Sporn, who is a Chicago organizer, is multiply affiliated, she wears many hats, and Evan Weber of Sunrise Movement and Our Hawaii. Uh, this panel was broadcast live on November 30th as a webinar hosted by the Momentum Training Institute. Before the panel began, we heard a presentation from Evan, who published a report with Momentum on how to build political power as part of Momentum-style social movements. That report is included in the show notes, and our recording picks up just after that. Also in the show notes, I'm going to include a, a recent Convergence article uh, on independent political organizations, or IPOs, which I think excellently complements the conversation here. Okay, without further ado, here's our panel. Um, I think Evan uh, summarized some of uh, what we were able to do well in Sunrise in particular. If, if you know me, you know that I'm a little bit more inclined to dwell on the things that we lost and failed. Uh, Congress is hard. Presidential politics is hard. And when you fail, you also fail hard. And so that's part of the story of this moment, too, is I think a lot of people who maybe felt like we were on the upside of something uh, during the, the Trump years when, you know, Bernie and other progressive candidates, left champions were still in the game, are now feeling like at least federally we're on the downside of the wave and the prospects are uh, pretty poor, at least for the next few years. So that's part of why uh, we, we need to be here having a conversation and as Evan mentioned, you know, the um, I think something that we have now that we didn't have uh, five or six years ago is a, a really proliferating set of local uh, efforts to do some version of this same thing of figuring out how to wield the power of social movements in the political arena. And so that's why I'm so excited to be here with a, a variety of panelists who have different ideas and are part of organizations that are taking different approaches to questions like, you know, how we define ourselves as politically independent while operating within the political realities of the, the two-party system. We may disagree about how hard or how fast to uh, make a break from the Democratic Party or if that's even the right question to be asking. So um, it's a really rich moment to be asking these questions, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here with, with Evan and with our other three panelists. So um, briefly, I would just like to begin with a quote from the Chilean writer Marta Harnaker, who has been a, a leading theorist and participant in the Latin American socialist movements that have been so successful over the last few decades and, frankly, really outstrip us um, in, in North America, the United States, in terms of their sophistication about these questions. Um, so that's why I wanted to start with this quote. And I quote, in order for political action to be effective so that protests, resistance, and struggles are genuinely able to change things, to convert mass uprisings into revolutions, a political instrument, a political instrument capable of overcoming the dispersion and fragmentation of the exploited and the oppressed is required. One that can create spaces to bring together those who, in spite of their differences, have a common enemy, that is able to strengthen existing struggles and promote others by orienting their actions according to a thorough analysis of the political situation, and that can act as an instrument for cohering the many expressions of resistance and struggle. 
Um, and that's from her essay, um, A Political Instrument Appropriate for Each Reality. And um, what I like about Harnaker's term political instrument is that it's deliberately broad. And she says this, it's deliberately broad so that it can encompass everything from a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary party to various coalitional formations and really any other organizational form that might accomplish the task that she sets out, which is to unite our actually existing social movements and social bases and bring that power to bear on the realm of government and state power. And she emphasizes, and again, I quote, that organizational questions cannot become the objective itself. Organizational questions are just a tool that enables this objective to be reached. And the form which this struggle takes depends on the reality of each country. And here I would add different realities within the same country, uh, depending on where you exist within these 50 states and, and, and many territories. One cannot have a single formula for the organization. It must be defined to fit the characteristics of each social reality, end quote. And once again, we've invited these different panelists because um, you're great organizers, you're great strategists, and each of you have advanced experience with building and participating in different sorts of political instruments, uh, one that has responded to each of your specific social and political realities. Uh, you're all from blue states, um, New York, Illinois, Washington, Evans from Hawaii, but the political and social conditions of each of these states are different. And I have a hunch that this, among other factors, has shaped the form that your work is presently taking. So um, we're going to start by hearing about uh, what you've built, what's gone well, before moving into uh, some self-critique and some crosstalk about the challenges of these uh, respective models. So I, I, I think Evans introduced himself. So um, let's hear from our other three panelists. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell us about the political instrument or instruments of which you are a part, how it coalesces grassroots struggles to wield their power in the political arena, and maybe one accomplishment that you're really proud of um, that your political instrument has been able to achieve. So let's do this uh, from west to east, beginning in the Pacific Ocean, going to Hawaii, Chicago, and then New York. So over to you, Evan. Noah Kako from Hawaii, everyone. It's great to be here with you all. Um, yeah, my name's Evan Weber. Um, I help to lead an organization called Our Hawaii. Um, it's a multiracial organizing and political power building group here. To a lot of you, you might know me uh, as one of the co-founders and former political director of Sunrise Movement um, that I helped start uh, with my good friend here, uh, Will Lawrence, amongst others. And it's definitely safe to say that without momentum, um, Sunrise Movement wouldn't exist, at least in the way that it did. But it really gave folks like Will and I the tools to be able to really meet and have some of the strategic conversations that um, really led us to finding each other and others as allies. Um, so, yeah, I'm really grateful and blessed to be here. So that's it. That's all for me. Kamau, you can introduce yourself next. Thanks so much. This is um, a really exciting conversation. Um, my name is Kamau Shege. I'm the executive director of Washington Community Alliance and Washington Community Alliance Action Fund. It's a network of dozens of organizations across Washington state focused on building multiracial social democracy in Washington state. Um, I think the political instrument that we use in terms of our network is our member organizations. Um, and one reason I was excited to organize with them is for a long time, I think leftists have not done as much as we could to organize pre-existing institutions that have a lot of trust, even if, even as their memberships have decayed over the um, last few decades and organize the leaders of those institutions to see a bold, radical, and transformative change as a way that they could both revive their memberships and also be leaders in their community. And I think there's also just a larger question for the left about how we build our governing uh, practice and muscle. And a good way to do that is by being able to say, 
govern a city or a county or a state as we're trying to have more ambitious plans for um, being in a place to shape the governing direction of our country. Thank you, Kamal. You know, just 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 brag on yourself for a minute. Tell us about one accomplishment or one victory uh, so that the people can know how how strong your work is. I Well, I think one of the most recent things that we've been able to do is wield our network to pass a suite of budget provisos to study a lot of, to study the feasibility of implementing big solutions. One of them was right now, we, the state of Washington has to study the feasibility of a social wealth fund. And it's a small thing, but it is one of those uh, first building blocks for making sure that even your opposition and the establishment are taking your ideas seriously and have to contend with them. So I'm excited about that. And then this year, uh, we also, the network contacted 2.5 million voters in Washington state and trying to more and more to build that muscle as well. Thank you. Uh, Let's go to Asha. Hey, y'all. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks, thanks, Will, Evan, Momentum, um, for for holding this space. So I will just say a little bit about how I kind of arrive at this. Um, I come to this work out of the movement for Black Lives, really out of movement building and issue organizing. Um, I co-founded a group called BYP 100, and I saw that political project really as being, you know, and my specific role is figuring out how do you translate the mobilization, the mass protest into political home with robust membership that's like organizing in a way that translates into material wins. And I watched our movement literally mobilize millions of people into the streets, put forward really good proposals for changes, do good organizing, and yet have political leaders at many levels who were very determined and uninterested in meeting our demands and without political imperatives to give us wins. Um, And I specifically saw that play out in Chicago and with mayors who, you know, were were hostile to our movement, even when we were doing effective organizing, um, turning lots of people out to all the, you know, town halls and this and that and protesting at their house ousting a state's attorney, like demonstrating some political power. And so I think, you know, many years of those experiences led me to believe like we can't actually, you know, if we're serious about creating the change that we want to see, we have to see the project of building political power as a part of it um, and participate in the work of demonstrating that we can choose who is and isn't in office to make those decisions. So I'm kind of here to talk about the Chicago project right? It's a neoliberal city, a segregated city, an unequal city along the lines of race, like many of the places that um, we organize in. And so, you know, decades of neoliberal reforms, gutting public infrastructure, privatization that has resulted in increased inequality along the lines of race um, means that our political project here is reversing that. So an align- I'm talking kind of about an aligned set of movements, um, a series of coalitions, that are working to beat back neoliberalism and structural racism. Um, I think what's important about Chicago is that it's a city very rich and dense in terms of old school community organizing groups that have been around for like 50, just as long as those neoliberal reforms have been happening um, longer. New, like a lot of kind of new school grassroots movement oriented groups, and then also strong progressive labor unions um, that are willing to put money into elections. So in 2019, a handful of progressives um, and some pretty strong socialists were elected to our city council and, you know, really kind of began this phase of experimenting with co-governance, with seeing folks that we see as movement leaders, like literally that come out of some of those community organizations in city council. There are 50 people on our city council Um, Our mayor was very hostile to that block, so they didn't have a lot of power. Um, And this year in 2023, we've kind of expanded. Now there are 19 progressives on our city council, and we were able to elect a mayor that comes out of the Chicago Teachers Union um, and the labor movement and really ran on, you know, a platform of the issue demands of our movement, you know, and the the 
campaigning just to get there. We were outspent. We like knocked half a million doors. It was a, you know, massive, massive organizing project. I, you know, was a part of the field, um, you know, one of the field directors on that campaign. And, you know, you just don't get that type of organizing power without strong, a really strong organizing ecosystem that is willing to kind of flex its power. Um, and that ecosystem includes um, an organization called United Working Families, which is a party formation really anchored by unions and a growing like individual membership, but largely by labor unions and a set of independent political organizations um, that operate at like the neighborhood level, like by ward um, around our city. Then kind of more informally, our movement around police violence and community safety, that was a huge part of the narrative um, in this election, like really mobilized the labor movement. And then we had coalitions um, and a table in particular of C3 groups that showed up in an important way that like, you know, arguably set the compelling agendas that you know, allowed for many of those candidates to win. And I think we're able to sort of set a tone of some contention even during campaign season. So yeah, now stuff is hard and we'll get into that in later the questions, I think. But yeah, I'm proud of that. And I think uh, just like an issue win that I think is even more important to uplift than, than the candidates is something called treatment not trauma. So, you know, one of those neoliberal reforms that I talked about was our former mayors closed down, like the majority of the city used to have a bunch of publicly run free mental health clinics. They closed most of those down. There's a ton of data about, you know, the horrible impact of that. And so TNT is this proposal to reopen them and create a non-police crisis response system for mental health. Folks have been protesting and calling out, you know, the clinic closures for a decade. The, you know, last of them were closed in 2012. So protest movement has been happening, community organizing, mutual aid stuff for years. Then in 2020, one of those socialist alder people wrote a great policy called Treatment Not Trauma that was like a solution to it. Last year in 2022, we put a referendum on the ballot in three specific wards, particularly impacted by this issue to show popular support. It passed by like 97%. So really demonstrating, you know, our organizing power and popular support on an issue. And the goal of the referendum was to make it, it was in the November election, our municipal elections were at the beginning of this year. Uh, to make it like a top issue. And it became every debate it was asked about, like every candidate was trying to like, you know, at least use the slogan, even if they weren't behind the policy, you know, it became a big thing. And now it's like been one of the biggest priorities and places where we've seen success with our new mayor and city council. There's funding for two clinics just in this first budget, $15 million behind the crisis response program. Um, And so, you know, yeah, get our people in there, but it's like where we have strong organizing and like multifaceted strategies where we're actually going to see those concrete wins. Thank you, Asha. And uh, now let's go to Lizzie. Hey, y'all. Honored to be with some of the greats. Um, My name is Lizzie. I'm a member of New York City DSA. I'm currently on the steering committee of our org. We are defined as a mass socialist organization. And we define ourselves as big tent. So there are various ideological tendencies within our organization. And so we make uh, decisions democratically with uh, a very clear laid out leadership structure um, in order to decide our priority campaigns and figure out our strategy to move our um, members to those campaigns and make sure that we win socialism at every, every level of government. And so in our efforts, we've engaged in key issues, issue level fights, um, electoral uh, fights, and also just abolitionist organizing, mutual aid, things on the ground at the local, state, and now global level as we try and with all our might to um, stop the genocide that is happening in Gaza. And just to provide a little bit of context about New York City, which I love, I, I'm a born and bred New Yorker. It is the most expensive city in the world. The rent is too damn high always, but it is pretty. It's pretty acute here. Um, we have a cop mayor, Eric Adams, in response to the 2020 George Floyd uprisings, and um, 
continuous austerity budgets that have been handed out over now what is um, more than like 30 years, right? And New York is where you can see the like very disparate um, effects of redlining and gentrification and displacement. So we engage in local fights, but as a part of our strategy, right, to ensure that our demands are met, that we win material benefits for working class people, we've been doing an inside-outside strategy by also trying to get socialist electeds in power, in government, and then working and organizing very closely with them in a co-governance structure so that we become the left flank in a lot of ways. Um, Abolitionist presence, not absence, so investing in our communities, rent control, taxing the rich, um, building public renewables, among many others. And right now we have two socialist city council members and eight state electeds, uh, socialist state electeds. And of course, um, we have we were able to elect AOC in 2018, and she um, we're trying to organize more with her uh, at the federal level. Uh, there's so much that I can talk about in terms of what I'm proud of as, you know, through my tenure here at um, while organizing with DSA. But one thing that I want to really tout is our efforts this year to pass the Build Public Renewables Act, which is going to enable uh, the New York State Power Authority to build renewable energy, have it be publicly controlled, lower energy rates for low-income communities, and also close fossil fuel plants that are primarily in environmental justice communities like mine. I live in Astoria, which is also called Asthma Alley. So, I mean, that fight alone took four years of my life, um, many more <laughs> for a lot of our other comrades. And so that was a key piece of what we would call a Green New Deal legislation that um, brought more power back to the public and, you know, ensured that just transition is publicly controlled. So I'll end it there, but happy to be here and continue this conversation. Thank you, Lizzie. Well, there's a lot I'd love just to follow up on with all those, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us through the questions that we have because we've got uh, some important debates debates to get into. I, I really want to explore the trade-offs between um, more coalitional forms of building a political instrument and more self-contained organizational or party-like forms. And I think within the people in this room, you know, Kamau, you talked about Washington Community Alliance being a, a, a coalition of um, many different um, base building organizations, including a lot of legacy organizations, and you're kind of converting them to a more ambitious vision. Asha, you know, I know you've talked about kind of coalitions nested within coalitions, a variety of neighborhood level and ward level organizations in Chicago. United Working Families has taken on a role as one of the leading expressions of that at a citywide level. But, you know, then I know that there's complications and uh, sometimes misalignments within that. And then um, with Lizzie and New York DSA, you know, DSA is proudly independent and describes itself as a, a, a party in formation uh, and um, it engages in coalitions, but um, it really puts a, a, a prime emphasis on its ability to, you know, kind of take care of business and be independent as an organization. So uh, just going back to the three of you, maybe in that same order, uh, if you wanted to speak briefly about why it's taken the shape it has um, and how you're experiencing those choices of um, how to structure your political instrument. Yeah, I'm happy to kick things off. I think this is a really important question because there are real trade-offs and um, or at least more or less constraints with different structures. I think one of the benefits of the structure we have as network of organizations is plugging into pre-existing networks of credibility because so often our ideas on the left are popular, but people don't think that you can win them. Or even if you do win them, people don't think that they'll actually do what they're supposed to do. And people have that kind of lived experience of promises made and promises broken. Um, and especially when when a message is coming from someone that's an organizer, someone that they view as an activist, rather than 
the leader of the local urban league, it like hits different. And that's incredibly helpful and also begets more credibility um, and trust to make it easier for these issues to be understood as common sense solutions um, and not make it so easy for the left's vision for change to be shunted and cornered and isolated. So I think that's a huge benefit. One of the, um, you know, things that happened recently in was we passed a capital gains tax. Washington state has the most regressive tax code in the country. We don't have an income tax. Um, we have very few taxes on uh, the rich in corporations. And I think that was in part helped by having lots of community-based organizations um, driving that message. At the same time, I think there are real drawbacks because if you're a coalition of organizations, you are relying on your organizations to do the organizing to bring up membership. Um, and you have to actively be doing political education to raise the expectations of your members about what they could win if they um, if they fought together. Um, yeah, leave it at that. Yeah, so I, I've been kind of describing an ecosystem in Chicago, and I think that's like the best way to understand our project, you know, but an ecosystem isn't a permanent coalition. Um, we have a lot of tables that come together for a specific thing. Like that's a big part of the organizing culture is like coming together on one specific campaign or one specific budget cycle um, and like coming together with what our, you know, red lines are, but those are not necessarily permanent coalitions. And I, I do think that means there's not always formal space to debate and struggle across the breadth of different formations doing the work. And it really is like, you know, a, a large number of organizations um, that that went into something like our last election cycle or like um, we have a, a ballot initiative uh, coming up around housing, um, a fight like that. So yeah, I think the pitfalls, right, are that like different people in like our political project are sometimes defining who they're in coalition with using that language differently and therefore defining who they're accountable to differently, whose interests they serve differently. And, and those things are not always the same. And then that said, I think, you know, there's some space and freedom that I think is important to know that you are like a part of a political project with different formations that are going to play different roles at different times. And I think it is important um, that that freedom and that level of uh, that just dynamic nature of an ecosystem gets to play out, right? So there are some organizations that honest that like when the mayor contracts a company that runs detention centers to build camps that are going to house asylum seekers that need shelter, like they need to be able to protest. And there are other people that are going to need to take meetings with the mayor to like push what that looks like. And I think an ecosystem, you know, allows people to not be silenced and having to like play their role in moments like like that one. Um, and then, you know, you, you use the word co-governance. And I think that's one that has become like an ouch word for us in Chicago. We were like using it a lot right after the election this time around. And yeah, I, I do think that framing can sometimes obscure where there is actual power. Um, so I think the closest thing to what co-governance looks like that we have in Chicago is at the ward level with some of our city council people, particularly some of those socialist incumbents who have a really strong ward-based independent political organization that they are a member of, that ran them, that like does a robust field at, you know, program every time around at the neighborhood level that they're in conversation with about like every important vote. And I think that is like close to co-governance. Um, I think at the city level with like the mayor, that's not actually an accurate word. Like we are organizing in a friend, in a, in some ways, friendlier landscape that is changing and like not always what exactly what we had expected it to be like, but um, I think at, at this stage that we're in, I think it's important that, you know, we 
are clear that we have like political power, we may have more influence, um, and we can wield that power. But we like the movement doesn't necessarily have governing power. Like we got someone from our movement in there and he has governing power. So anyway, I just think those like getting really specific about who has power um, is important um, when we talk about these things. And I think the IPOs are useful as one example. Yeah, I I love that you mentioned power, Asha, because that's something that we we kind of get stuck on is, so I have a hot take, which is I, I kind of feel like coalition, the word itself and also coalitions are where the work like doesn't happen <laughs> sometimes. And I think we sometimes conceive of power as many orgs and all of their logos on a sheet of paper that says that we're going to advocate for the Green New Deal or um, for to tax the rich. And like we're like, that's powerful because there's a broad base of coalition. And that can be. But for us as DSA, um, as a mass organization that is, you know, decidedly a socialist and we engage in um, in fights that are strategic and that everybody is involved in that strategy, we actually tend not to defer to coalitions because we kind of want to be um, the left flank of the historic bloc in a very Gramscian sense. And you know, be principled, be moralistic. If we want our um, socialists in office to reject a budget that does not tax the rich, that that does not include universal um, child care, that does, does not have rent control, then we want all of them to vote no on that budget. Um, and for us, even if that is not necessarily building power, um, and of course, in that co-governance sense, like it actually shows that we don't have power because the budget will pass regardless. Uh, for us, that moral line is in fact power building for us in terms of setting the the parameters of what we will um, do and what we won't settle for. Um, so for our membership, our power comes from mobilized members, but also organized members who are clearly leaders and able to drive um, the organizing forward, um, who are able to carry out various tactics for our broader strategy in like the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years. And so we tend to like define ourselves we we tend to in to be in coalitions we're always going to be in coalition we obviously are um they're, they're so necessary in our landscape right now but we like the sort of nimble nature and um like to maintain our own character and want to have a clear leadership pipeline um and build up uh, the left flank i'd love to explore in another conversation um just how much of this is conditioned by the landscape and ecosystem that each of you grew up into and inhabit. Like Asha mentioned, like the strong Chicago community organizing tradition, which then was joined by a bunch of new movements, which then also has this incredibly strong left labor tradition. And it's hard to imagine anything other than a sort of sprawling but really vibrant ecosystem, given that. You know, Kamau, I'm a little less familiar with the Washington State context, but it sounds like you had some people that you could parlay with who some 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 legacy organizations, but then who were, you know, in this blue state, maybe ready to feel hungry for more. And then Lizzie, I mean, I would love to live in a city where, I mean, there's like just a lot of unaffiliated young socialist minded people. Honestly, I don't think there's that many places like New York City in the world where you've got like a thousand socialists moving to town every single day, I bet. And they're showing up at your new member meetings. I mean, I see I see you posted about them and it's really inspiring, but um, I, I wish they would move to Lansing instead. Here we have none of that. So we're trying to do something else, you know, um, and Evan could tell us about Hawaii. But um, we should do another version of this conversation for people from small and medium sized cities with like very little infrastructure of any of these types. And then the question is how to build it, to, you know, again, is it a coalition? Is it a is it a freestanding group? But um, uh, so I'm musing on that. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. 
Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. I want to ask a question about like how important is it in in your analysis um, to win things, to win material gains through the process of co-governance or just pressuring people? And because I frequently hear it asserted that like the way that we build power over the next 10 years on the left is to deliver victories for working class people who are then going to see that it's socialists and progressives who are fighting for them effectively and actually delivering the goods, which is going to convert more people to leftism and so on. So I, I want to ask, is this part of your theory where you operate um, and um you know, do you buy it? And are there any um, uh, caveats or, or context in which you don't buy it? And I'll just open it up to all four, um, including Evan and um, hear from whoever wants to jump in on this. I think it's like an, a nice idea to believe would be true. Um, and I, I think it is not that simple. I think like, you know, there's so many factors that impact someone's lived material reality in the world in a given year. And, you know, I think regardless of how transformative, like a policy win that we get, I just think it's so hard to actually like isolate that out in impact. Um, and a lot of the times the impact of the things that we're fighting for is like the difference between your life staying the same instead of getting much worse or getting less worse or less worse than it would have gotten. And I think that people, you know, your assessment of your reality, the city that you live in, the systems that you live under is like a thing that people interpret and people aren't necessarily taking all of the data points in the world and doing like a structural analysis of that um, for their own life, but people are filtering and making sense of their experience with frameworks for understanding the world. And I think that people make choices about the frameworks that they latch onto based on like what they already believe in, what feels good to believe in. Sometimes people believe in political ideas that like are not in their self-interest because it's more comforting than like facing, you know, reality, or it's like closer to something that you've been fed for a long time. And is like an idea that you can wrap your head around. So, you know, I think that is, and a lot of times the material wins are like, maybe they make one community's life better. Maybe they don't actually impact everyone. I just think it's really hard to say that people are going to have like the ability to measure that in a super clear and concrete way. And I think it um, it's just also not how people like think necessarily and experience the world. So I do think we have to deliver material wins. I kind of think almost to like Lizzie's point about political lines, like I actually think it's really important for us to keep going for like proof of concept for people that are already bought in a little bit and, and you know, structure tests for what we can do that build coalition um, to test out whether the strategies that leftists are employing, you know, like whether they work or not. Um, and they're important, obviously, for impact. But I think it has to be matched with movement work that offers people frameworks for understanding things that are going to feel good to believe in and are going to like resonate with their experience and are going to be compelling enough to go through the discomfort of maybe undoing something that you believed in before. You know, capitalists have made people believe in and support ideas that, you know, don't support their like material self-interest forever. And so it's just it's just not enough to only live in that plane. Um, and it's also not good organized. Like, you know, if we got to make people believe in something and like be in the idea space, if we want to organize people enough to probably get big wins in the first place. So I, I think my answer is it's just not as simple as that. And I think we have to like really give weight and care and attention to like the psychological and social piece of that and offer people a way to interpret their experiences that 
resonates and that feels good and you know yeah that they that they're going to want to believe in to make sense of those material changes and reality um and understand that sometimes it really is um not going to make people's lives way better um but that doesn't mean it's not a substantive win yeah i think um, i basically agree with that that um material wins don't speak for themselves and uh policy victories don't sell themselves it's still important for us to be really focused on material fights and not uh just sloganeering or a kind of culture you know and 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 campaigning on vibes but i th- i think one story that articulates this well to me recently was uh earlier this year we won social housing in Seattle as a ballot initiative. And so it's clearly like a very material thing. Like, you know, um, the rent is super high uh, uh, in in Seattle. And the way that it took place, because it was a special election in February, uh, had a couple components of this. Like, yes, we're focused on this um, material win. I don't think we were you know, doing that because we think then it's going to build uh, this like long lasting statue that remem- that remembers who won. But I do think the way the f- the fight and the campaign took place was a really interesting synthesis of what we've been talking about. On one hand, uh, it was a community based organization that was leading that effort uh, uh, called Washington Can and Real Change, uh, who are members, and at the same time, Seattle DSA. Uh, was campaigning really hard for that initiative because it lined up with what they uh, were doing. And because we had built up this uh, credibility and trust, we had just taken over the van um, or the voter file for the state, which is usually a tool that, um, and a gatekeeping tool that is used against uh, left organizations. The campaign won, um, it passed, now needs to be capitalized. And to me, the big takeaway is you have to fight for material change, but at the same time, you have to articulate uh, what the end game is or what the horizon is that you're working towards so that well, if you get an incremental victory, people have a story in their head about the fight not being over, even if that's just a story for your organizers um, and volunteers and people who support you. Yeah, I basically agree with Asha and Kamal. So when we're fighting for material gains, we're often fighting for non-reformist reforms, right? We want to basically better the like conditions in a in a in a very real way. Um, that's not going to change our entire structure. We're like not overhauling our capitalist system, but we're um, winning some welfare benefits, or we're some able to decrease inequality by this much. And so the question that comes up for me is when we build that, when we win that material win, right, did we actually build power? And by power, I mean, do we have a developed base and are they leaders in their own right? Um, Did we build an independent coalition with labor unions, with government workers, et cetera, et cetera? The other question that comes up for me is, are, are we actually able to implement that? material win. So I know Seattle just passed social housing, which is so incredible. And I'm like, okay, so are are people now going to build that social housing? Um is that is that social housing built? Like are we going to take a picture with it with our hard hats on saying that we built that? You know? Um part of winning is like we also have to own that and the narrative has to be progressives and people who care about you want this and we're going to be able to do more of this, right? Because often what happens is as really good organizers, we hustle, we win the campaign, and not all of us are equipped to actually do that winning the win implementation part. Um, and that's actually some, as as leftists, like we actually have to get better at that. And I think Evan's uh, report delves into that, that aspect, right, of statecraft um, and of our actual implementation. And then the the third question that comes up for me is, um, are we are we set up politically like to actually to fight more fights, material 
rankings, right? Because the horizon is far <laughs> and it's it's not nowhere near as we, uh, where it should be. Um, is that is our material win going to be beat down automatically by capitalists? Um, is some nonprofit developer going to come in and try to co-opt our social housing? Or is we, we just want of the Build Public Renewables Act, right? And so the question is, are we going to ensure that NYPA actually builds it? Are we like just selling ourselves short by like having maybe some private renewable energy developers come in and take over these projects like 10 years down the road? So these are all questions that come up for me, which is winning the win is not just that. It's like, were we able to build power? Are we able to maintain that win? And are we set better set to actually um, keep fighting? Because often, more often than not, what we've seen is as we've built power, um, capitalists and our enemies and the fascists are so quick to knock us down. And we need to get better at building our fortresses, right, with every material gain. So those are the questions that I always ask ourselves and um, try to think through in every campaign now, because it's it's beyond just the material win. It's it's our ability to survive and thrive beyond um, the non-reformist reform. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what has been said about the sort of like complexity of this question, um, especially at the state level. Um, I do think it's like, uh, I do think that at a state level um, and a local level, people do care a lot more about the sort of material questions of like, what is the infrastructure in your community? Like, um, what did the school get built? And like, how does that affect your child's life? And I, I think that that gives an opportunity for leftists and progressives to both kind of win those things while waging these ideological battles. I, I think at the federal level, the jury's still out um, and it's constantly changing. I, I think we, I, I spent a lot of time, unfortunately, uh, looking at the right and studying <laughs> Republicans. I think my neighbors might think that I'm a Republican because I have like Fox News, like clips blaring all the time. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think we look at the right and this question of do material winning material gains necessary for helping build power? The answer would obviously be no. <laughs> the Republicans have not delivered anything um, really over the last several decades. And yet in 2016, a far right faction of MAGA, Tea Party, whatever you want to call them, was able to seize the presidency, take the House and the Senate um, and really shift the ideology of this entire party in what all polling suggests is actually a center-left country. So when you look at this nationally and you look at what the Republicans have been able to do, the answer is no, <laughs> that delivering material gains is not necessary um, for building power. Now, does it help? Uh, unfortunately, at the federal level, I think, unfortunately, the jury's still out on that, and we're not going to really be able to have as good of a test case uh, as we wanted to. Um, I was spent a lot of time in 2019 and 2020 basically selling this idea to <laughs> Democratic senators and, um, so that they would like go along with our Green New Deal um, scheme in, in crafting what became Build Back Better. But because uh, one Democratic senator, Chuck Schumer, did a really bad job at Senate candidate recruitment and interfered in a lot of primaries um, in 2020, um, Joe Manchin, uh, who... Um, is now thinking about running for third party as president and, and hasn't really been a Democrat for a while, um, was the deciding vote for Democrats in Congress. And um, we didn't we both didn't get to really implement that sort of like factional compromise vision between the left and liberals that build back better represented and then go around the country and start selling it. But also to Lizzie's point, because uh, the pro Joe Manchin dragged the process along for so long. Um, the implementation of those victories and what the material reality means in communities haven't really begun to get, get realized yet. I'm working on implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law here in Hawaii now. And like the funds aren't there yet. Like they're they're going to be trickling in all the way through the summer of next year. Um, and and so what is there to really sell? So I, I, you know, I, I think it's really unfortunate <laughs> because um, if that were the case, that 
we could have really strongly sold something um, and it led to bigger Democratic majorities in 2024 and a re-election of President Biden, that would actually be a really strong case for, to continue the left liberal alignment and the non-reformist reform strategy that Lizzie is outlining at the federal level. Excellent responses all around. Um, thanks so much for that. <clears throat> I want to ask this question that's really grounded in the present situation in Gaza, which, as we know, has changed the conditions dramatically within the last two months. Um, commitment to U.S. militarism and imperialism, whether of the soft or the hard variety, I think we can agree is an absolute consensus position among political elites. And that's actually been one of the conditions for entry into the political elite. And historically, because of this, I think a lot of the uh, you know, progressive, except for Palestine types, have feared that they will be shunned or iced out if they take a different position. And this would prohibit them from accomplishing their domestic or municipal priorities and delivering from the people who they want to deliver for locally. Um, so I just want to ask straight up, is this fear of retaliation justified? What are the consequences you've seen of left representatives holding anti-imperialist positions? And is it indeed necessary to sell out one's most radical principles or at least to bite one's tongue about them in order to sit at the table of co-governing, of, of governing power in that posture of co-governance? And based on what we've all seen unfold over the last two months and these conversations as they're playing out in your organizing spheres, um, what do you think is the the principled and strategic stance um, that um, uh, we as organizations and our representatives in office um, ought to be taking on internationalism and um, uh, other third rail issues as well? Maybe we can start with um, Lizzie and then anyone else who wants can jump in. Yeah, thank you so much for this. And um, I just want to start off by saying DSA Nationally, um, we just made 300,000 calls to um, congressional members to call for a ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire um, in Gaza so that we can end a genocide that is happening, that is funded by the U.S. military, that is backed by U.S. imperial interests. So the short and dirty answer is no. <laughs> we do not betray our principles. We do not betray um, the Palestinian people. Um because their interests are actually our interests, right? Um, and I think part of our what we faced in New York City was quite astonishing. I did not even know that APAC was that mobilized. We made a bit of a comes, uh, curf, uh, kerfuffle um, after October seventh, and um, uh, we were, you know, our leadership, our socialist electeds were doxed, were harassed. You know, they were threatened by um, by Democratic leadership. Um, they've been through hell. But I think the bright side of knowing that is that uh, people are seeing the underbelly of um, the Israeli occupation. Um, we have been principled. And I'm not saying that it wasn't a struggle even within our own membership and our own electeds, right, to be able to hold that line. Um, that exact question of will standing with the Palestinian people prevent us from doing sewer socialism has literally been brought up by um, socialist electeds. And the answer is, even if so, our conscience, our principles um, as leftists, you know, I hope that we are far better than thinking about, again, the short-term wins over our broad horizon which is um, liberation for all people, all oppressed people all across the world. And so I want to talk a little bit about our role in the Imperial Corps, because that's where we are right now, right? Um, genocide is happening. Um, we're mass protests on the streets, um, phone calls every every day, right? Phone banking, um, direct action at congressional offices. And what's what what I'm seeing right now um, is that there's actually there are cracks in the logic of capitalism, of imperialism, of U.S. militarism happening in the public right now. Um, what is it like? Eighty percent of Democrats support a ceasefire, right? And 
So our role in Imperial Corps, and this is whether I'm in Cuba or in Korea or even in England, right, in the UK, folks will say your role as a leftist in the U.S. is to ensure that um, U.S. imperialism crumbles, is to um, is to detract the the carceral logic, the the militarism that is oppressing people all across the world, and that bring those fights home and make people understand the reason why the cost of living is so high, the reason why there's so vast inequality, the reason why <laughs> that you're not able to like pay off your debt, um, even though there is, a, but there are billions and billions of dollars for Israel to commit a genocide is precisely because of that. It's because the U.S. needs poverty and needs you to be in living in substandard um, in a completely alienated state um, to, you know, churn the the machine, right? The military machine. And so I think our role is to connect our issues, to draw the connections as deeply as we can, to use the moment to further raise people's consciousness and um, build it into our, our, our work. Everything is connected, right? Like why does the NYPD um, train with the IDF? Um, why does APAC have millions of dollars funding electoral cycles? These are all questions that we want to ask and our working class people to understand um, so that we feel solidarity with people all across the world and not just here in the US. Yeah, I, I, I wanna jump off of what Lizzie shared uh, at the end there. I think I agree that the cracks of empire um, are beginning to crumble and it's our job um, to <laughs> accentuate those cracks. Here, here in Hawaii, um, last year, we won a big fight uh, against the US Navy who poisoned the water supply for um, basically half of the state's population um, and basically got them to back off and um, back down and, and um, planning to e-fuel that was a fight led by native hawaiian organizers and others um and it's really like changing the context of our very real imperial situation here i also think when we look like will said i'm a kind of doomed optimist and i think when, when we look at the backlash that we've seen from um uh apac and others like it really is because of the progress that the left faction has made on this issue um over the past several election cycles you know in, when we were uh, everyone on this panel here was growing up barbara lee was the only person to vote against the war in afghanistan right and now we have uh uh a squad um that has come out leading this effort uh for a ceasefire uh we have 40 members of congress as of today i think or 45 or something like that who have um backed a ceasefire um and, and an end to the war in, in israel and gaza so the reason that APAC is freaking out so much um, is because uh, the cracks really are there and beginning to show. P people might not know this. I'm, I'm um, Part of my viewpoint advantage on this is that I'm on the board of directors for If Not Now, which is a momentum movement working to end the American Jewish support for the occupation and apartheid in um, Palestine. And uh, we organize young Jews in particular, um, but trying to shift communal support overall. And I help a lot with our national political strategy. Um, a lot of people might not know that APAC didn't engage in elections at all um, before 2020. Um, and the reason that they started engaging in elections was because of the 2018 victories uh, that Justice Democrats and DSA and um, others led to get the squad elected and have real voices that were unabashed and unafraid to speak out for Palestinian humanity. Now they're the biggest, one of the biggest spenders in elections. Um, and we dealt with that in a really real way in the 2022 election cycle. Um, and they're now planning to spend four times um, what they spent in 2022, uh, in 2024, which would make them basically the equivalent of a third party um, in the, the United States. They're, they're spend, planning to spend as much as the Democrats' congressional campaign arm, $100 million. Um, so um, I think like the honest answer uh, that, that I want to push back on a little bit is like, are the, are, the, are the retaliation risks 
real? The honest answer to that is like, yeah, they really are. And, um, you know, Andy Levin was like one of the only Jewish members of Congress who had an ounce of courage um, on this issue and was pushing for Palestinian humanity. He uh, he was kicked out of Congress by APAC, a supposedly Jewish organization, um, and replaced with a non-Jewish uh, carpetbagger. Um, they spent like basically <laughs> like 700 something thousand dollars to defeat him um, in his own district. This is like a legacy politician who comes from a political family and a history of labor organizing um, just for daring to speak up for Palestinian humanity. So the the, the reputational risks are real, um, but I agree with Lizzie. That doesn't mean that um, we can't we we have to figure out ways forward and through. And I would even just put like, I, yeah, I appreciate what both of y'all said. And I, I agree that there's, you know, retaliation risks are real. And I think that you know, is because I think a, an American left that is like interna deeply internationalist is a threat to, you know, the systems in power. And I think the question like sometimes gets framed in this way of like the stuff we actually have control over, like the stuff that we're fighting for is like unrelated. And I would just argue that it's the same political project. Like we, we live in a glo global world and we have a global economy and a capitalist world order and the priority of a US of US foreign policy as has been the status quo and of US militarism is to maintain that capitalist world order and the US's place in it and so if you know our goal is to undermine capitalism or fight for you know something closer to socialism um, as leftists in the U.S., we have to understand that as an international project. There's no social democracy like on the top of an empire. Like that's not what we're fighting for. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'd add is that these struggles in particular require us to be at our most disciplined because the stakes are so high. And also because, especially when the public rightly is on our side that they're armed with messages to persuade the people in their lives to be part of uh the anti-war and peace movement um and so i think that's been one of the most encouraging things about um the last oof, uh two months is just how disciplined the um our movements have been in mobilizing public pressure Thanks, everyone. Um, we're going to do a speed round of, uh, I think, two audience questions um, and some quick responses. I, I, there was a question for Asha that is about elaborating a little bit on what you said about the vision of co-governance that you had before you were able to elect a mayor. Uh, and now uh, afterwards, maybe while some of the disappointments are coming into view. For those of us who, who are, are not so fortunate to have good problems, like having elected a mayor and now learning all the downsides of that, um, how would you say about the, the, the vision of co-governance um, kind of evolving or maybe, maybe moving away from that frame? That's a hard question. I mean, we used a lot of what we had, like capacity as the movement, just to get across the finish line. Um, so I think some of the real answer is just like we were fighting just to win. And I think we know how to win elections in Chicago, but like we're at not as many people know how to govern or like collaborate with people who are governing. Um, and that's just like a whole other question. And I think on the left, we talk a lot when we talk about political power. A lot of times we're just talking about elections, which is like that's step Get, getting in the room, you know, and, and governing is just like another thing. So I think it's opened up a lot of, yeah, just hard realities of the contradictions that come with inheriting like the fucked up system and set of private contracts that the city has and the way that things are. I do think that different interpretations of how we won and who's organizing did that and in what way have led to different interpretations of what we should do now. And that's like just one really important lesson. And so being able to tell that story um, in a grounded way is then, you know, power for your position about what should be happening after. Thanks, Asha. 
we're going to have to stop it there. And I got to pass it back to Amanda to uh, tell us about the other upcoming panels with Momentum. Folks, this has been really incredible. Um, you should all come over to my house and we can drink wine and we can talk more about this. And uh, appreciate everyone who's come and listened and apologies for the questions we didn't get to. But um, we know this is just the uh, one in an ongoing series of conversations about these vital talk topics. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon.